Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is found in John 18, verses 1 through 12, on page 904 in your pew Bibles. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is God's word. There's a scene in the Batman movie, The Dark Knight, that takes place after a nemesis named John Daggett. You have to love that name. (laughs) He partners with Bane, a fearsome, excommunicated member of the League of Shadows. Their plan was to take over the multi-billion dollar business of Batman's alter ego, Bruce Wayne. The plan went seemingly wrong. And so Daggett confronts Bane about the, the plans going awry. And in their encounter, Bane tells Daggett's aide to leave. Daggett stands up to him and says, stay, I'm in charge. At that point, the monstrous Bane hovering over the squirrely looking Daggett puts his hand on Daggett's shoulder and says, do you feel in charge? I wish I could do his Darth Vader-like voice because then you would get a sense of the feeling of Daggett at that point. I am not in control. I was never in control. It was an illusion. Someone much more powerful than I is in control. We all like to be in charge. We labor to control our circumstances in a variety of ways and a number of different levels. We want to control our family outcomes, our financial outcomes, our health outcomes our educational outcomes, and the nation's political outcomes. But fate looms large over us and places its hand and says, do you feel in charge? There are so many times we realize, no, we are not in charge. So who is in charge? It's not me, it's not you. Is it it, uh, chance? Is it the... presidents and prime ministers, the political parties, or the God small g of this world? Or is it the sovereign God we worship? Probably just about every one of us here today would answer, it's the sovereign God we worship. 
But do we always feel that way? Do we always rest in the fact that God is in control? No, we question it. A rabbi from Natick, actually, in the early 70s, wrote a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It became a mega bestseller because so many of us struggle with the sovereignty of God and his love and wonder how bad things can happen to good people. How there can be so much suffering and evil in our world if a loving God is in control. The book brought comfort to a number of readers because the author affirmed God's love and taught us we don't, shouldn't blame God because God isn't in control. The disciples must have felt that way the evening in Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified. Never in history did life seem more out of control than when the Son of God was captured, bound, and led like a lamb to slaughter by his enemies. Yet Jesus was in perfect control the entire time. Our Father, meet us today in our questions. This is a truth we believe intellectually. Move it today deeper and deeper into our hearts so that we rest in you, that we trust in you, no matter what storms go around in our lives. May your spirit drive home this reality in a special way today. Amen. If God was in control when life seemed most out of control, then we can trust that he's in control today. If Jesus was in control in Gethsemane when the world's most powerful forces bound him, then we can know he's in control today when we feel out of control. If the Lord was sovereign, then he is sovereign now. This morning we're going to see at first that it appeared Jesus' enemies were in control. Then we're going to see that's not the case. Jesus himself was in control. And then we're going to answer the question, if Jesus was in control, why did he allow them to arrest him and crucify him? That night in Gethsemane, it seemed Jesus' enemies were in complete control. The religious leaders had wanted to silence Jesus from the very inception of his ministry. Their attempts to arrest Jesus had been thwarted at every turn. So they finally put together a plot with one of Jesus' disciples, Judas. This time the plan worked. We read in verse 3 of chapter 18. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas seemed to be in control. He lined his pockets with 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus, and he led the temple police and Roman soldiers to a place where he knew that Jesus and his disciples regularly met. He identified Jesus with a kiss, which appears in the other Gospels. His betrayal of Jesus was intentional, well thought out. Judas had his way. The chief priests and Pharisees seemed to be in control. They wanted to arrest him before, but without success. 
After Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, they were more intent than ever that he should be put to death. Caiaphas, the high priest, had proclaimed that when he said, it's necessary that one man die rather than the whole nation perish. And so they put their plan into effect. The high priests and the Pharisees, having colluded with Judas, knew where he would, Jesus would be, and they taught, brought the officials, their soldiers, to arrest Jesus. But that wasn't going to be enough because the Jews could not impose the death penalty. Only the Romans could do that. And so they had to get the okay from the Romans. And they did that. And so a cohort of Roman soldiers came with them. They were armed to the teeth with their weapons. They had lanterns and lights as they were ready to search every crevice and corner of the garden to make sure that Jesus could not escape. They, were, they finally had their way. The Romans seemed to be in control. They were the supreme leaders of the world. They held the power of life and death, and they had the military strength to fulfill their mission. While at first the conflict between Jesus and the Jews seemed to be a minor skirmish, they ultimately realized that it could blow up into a full-blown insurrection. So they agreed not only to arrest Jesus, but to try him. And so they sent a cohort of Roman soldiers on the, for the task. A cohort is 500 soldiers. Now, most commentators believe they probably didn't send that many, but it's very clear they sent enough soldiers to complete the task. They carried the necessary weapons. The fire, the, fi the, the iron fist of Rome was in control. It was so evident to Peter that everything was out of control from the hands of Jesus that he decided he would take control. So he pulled out his sword, he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servants and cut off his ear. Peter was not in control. He, in fact, he missed his real target and only hit an ear. Peter had pledged that he would die with Jesus, and he really meant that. But he took a wrong approach. He was never going to be in control. The man who sought control failed in the eyes of the soldiers and in the eyes of Jesus who demanded that he put his sword away. Who was in control? Judas? The religious leaders? The Romans? There was a mastermind behind it all. The great deceiver. They were all the pawns in Satan's dark schemes. The plot to arrest Jesus unfolded when Satan entered into Judas. Chapter 13, verse 11. Then after Judas had taken a morsel, Satan entered into him. The religious leaders who thought they had finally had the upper hand on Jesus were simply fulfilling Satan's desires. John had, Jesus had predicted that in John 8, 44, when he said, You are of your father the devil, 
And your will is to do your father's desire. And he was a murderer from the beginning. The Roman soldiers using overwhelming forces to come after Jesus were Satan's instruments. Jesus foretold this in John 14.30 when he said, I will no longer talk much with you. The ruler of this world is coming. Even Peter in his lame attempt at control fell to the machinations of Satan. For Jesus had warned him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Who was in control in Gethsemane? Satan was the conductor who orchestrated it all. Darkness ruled. Satan had the upper hand, but only within the permissive will of God. Wherever Satan smashes a hole in a wall, God had intended a window or a doorway. In this case, it was a doorway to the fulfillment of Jesus' calling and mission. In reality, Jesus was in complete control. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus had been proclaiming, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, referring to the hour of his arrest, trial, and death. He told his mother this during the first miracle when he turned water into wine. Later in John 7.30 we read, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again in John 8.20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus always knew his hour would come. It loomed over him like a dark shadow. But it would come in God's timetable, not man's, not Satan's. And Jesus was committed to doing the Father's will in that hour. Shortly after he was greeted by the crowds crying, Hosanna, Jesus offered these words. What shall I say, Father? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. The hour was upon him, and five days later, Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure by meeting with them, giving his teaching to them in the upper room. At the end of that time together, he prayed, and he began his prayer with these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. The hour had come not because of Satan's schemes or human plots, but because it was God's will. There are markers throughout the events in Gethsemane that show us that Jesus was in complete control. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knew everything that was going to happen, but he let it take place. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew the Jewish leaders were plotting. He knew the armed soldiers would come after him, that his disciples would flee, that Pilate would condemn him, that the soldiers would nail him to the cross, and that the Father would abandon him. He knew it all, but he allowed it to happen because that was the purpose for which he came. 
The soldiers appeared to take charge when they brazenly entered into the garden with their weapons drawn. They'd expected Jesus to hide. That's again why they carried the torches and the lanterns. But Jesus didn't hide. He approached them. He took charge. He confronted them with the question, whom do you seek? As though he was interrogating them. Then we read in verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. If you check the ESV footnotes, you'll see that the word he is not in the original text. That he said, I am. He used the divine name of God. The name that God identified himself with when Moses stood before the burning bush. Moses heard God's mission and that he would deliver God's people from Egypt. And so Moses, knowing that he had to go to his people, the Jews, and say, the God of your fathers sent me. And Moses asked God, what if they ask, what's his name? Who it is that sent him? And God said, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. The power of that name blew them off their feet. If we notice verse 18.6. Jesus said to them, I am. He drew back. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now many commentators think that his claim to be divine surprised the front row and they backed up and tripped the row behind him, and that row tripped the row behind them until there was a domino effect, and every soldier had fallen to the ground. I believe, like other commentators, that this was a divine moment, that simply a sliver of God's divine glory slipped out of Jesus at that moment, and it was a supernatural movement that fell them all on their backside. Picture the scene. The soldiers are all laid out. Jesus stands. Who's in control? If the officers wanted to arrest Jesus, why didn't they also take his disciples? We read verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek them, let these men go. And they were let go. You know, it's unfathomable to think that the soldiers would let the disciples go. The religious leaders wanted to stop a movement. If you're going to stop a movement, you arrest the leader and you arrest the key followers. The Romans wanted to stop an insurrection, and yet it was happening right before their eyes. Peter had taken out a sword and began to fight. They could see a movement was growing. And yet, why did they let the disciples go? Because Jesus told them to. He was in control. And he did this 
to fulfill God's purpose that he would lose none of them. Verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken of those whom he gave me. I have lost no one. If I was in control, I would work everything out for my best and my loved ones. I would guarantee our prosperity, our health, our success, our reputations, our joy. Jesus' control led to his arrest, his unjust trial, his condemnation as a criminal, and his death. Why? Jesus answered that question when he told Peter to put his sword away. He added, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Since Jesus knew everything that would happen, he could have thwarted them at every move. He could have revealed more of his divine presence and kept him on the ground. Elsewhere, Jesus said he could have called 12 legions of angels. A legion of angels is 5,000. And legion is 5,000 men. So Jesus is saying, I could have called 60,000 angels to fight this number of human soldiers. We know who would have won. Jesus controlled it all. He was allowing it to happen because he was going to drink the Father's cup. He fulfilled God's purpose. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This cup refers to the tribulations and trials that he would endure in fulfilling his role as Savior and Redeemer. It would culminate in his death on the cross where he would drink the cup of the Father's divine wrath. Throughout the Old Testament and in Revelation, the cup is used as a picture of God's judgment of sin, his divine wrath being poured out. Just one example of that use is in Jeremiah 25, 15, where he said, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. God spoke of his judgment on the sins of the nation that he would pour out his cup of wrath. Jesus' purpose was to drink the cup of God's wrath that was for us, for our sins, the sins of humanity. He would drink it so we wouldn't have to drink it. His mission was to bear God's judgment that we deserve so that we won't be judged for our sins. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, capture Jesus' struggle in the garden over whether or not to drink the cup. But in the end, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Those Gospels say that Jesus was greatly troubled. He was sorrowful to the point of death. And he was in agony as he made that decision. He knew what he would have to endure. And he sweat drops like blood. Yet he got up from that prayer determined 
to drink the cup, no matter what the cost. John does not include that struggle. It gives us the picture of Jesus after that struggle, when he was resolutely determined to fulfill the Father's will, to die for our sins. What would the cup cost him? It included the extreme physical pain of torture and crucifixion. It included the shame he tolerated as he was mocked by the soldiers, the crowds, and by the religious leaders. And even the shame of all of his disciples deserting him. It included the emotional guilt that he felt as the weight of sin was placed on him, feeling as though he, the holy Christ, sinless Christ, had committed all those sins himself. And it included his abandonment from the Father, whom he loved so deeply, all climaxing in his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing all things that would happen Jesus stepped forward and said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am. He offered himself willingly to the plot of the Jewish leaders, to the injustice of the Romans, to the designs of Satan, and to the wrath of God. He was in complete control, so why would he allow himself to be led along the Via Dolorosa? the way of suffering. It's because of his love for the Father. His greatest desire is to glorify the Father. The hour has come, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. To glorify God, he would display all of the character qualities of God the wonderful nature of God himself. And when God is exposed for who he is, he is glorified. And that's what Jesus wanted on the cross. We realize that the cross shows God's love for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We understand that the cross displays God's grace and his goodness and his mercy, his faithfulness. It's all evident there. What we often overlook is how it displays God's holiness and justice because we don't seem to value those truths about God as we do his love. But the cross displays God's holiness. We seldom reflect on his holiness, but we should treasure it as Christ does. The universe would be a nightmare if God was not holy. If he was like us, self-centered, fickle, arrogant, self-serving, riddled with immorality and sin, what would our world be like? Thankfully, God is holy. He's pure. He's clean. 
And as a result, he cannot embrace sin. And because he's holy, his holiness needs to be satisfied. Our sin has to be dealt with before his love can embrace us. Jesus did that on the cross. God's justice is displayed on the cross. You know, our hearts really want justice. They resonate with the words of Martin Luther King when he channeled the Bible, saying, We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like the waters and righteousness like the mighty streams. We all look forward to that day when justice rolls down from the mountains. The desire for justice is deeply seated within us. Do we want God to not be just? The only way he could be just and loving is the way of the cross. Because justice says there needs to be a penalty for sin. That penalty is death, physical and spiritual death. We are all sinners. And that's the penalty that we deserve. So if God is just, then we would be separated from him for eternity. If he's holy, we would be separated from him for eternity. Unless that price was paid by someone else. By a man who is also infinite. And that is Jesus Christ. God is holy and just because our penalty was paid for by Jesus Christ. He is loving because our penalty was paid for by Jesus Christ. Jesus walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, because of his love for the Father and his desire to glorify the Father and because his love for you and me. In the upper room, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus would lay down his life for his friends. But we weren't his friends. We aren't his friends. We're his enemies. We've cast him off the throne of our lives. So Jesus died for friends and enemies. And Jesus died physically, but he didn't just die physically. He died spiritually in his separation from the Father. His love is even beyond what he said was the greatest love. And that's because of his love for you and me. We can never fathom the depths of God's love. But I pray over and over again we will come to the foot of the cross and realize his love his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his goodness, his holiness, and his justice, and that we will glorify God just as Jesus desired. You know, I once gave a children's message about the sovereignty of God, and I used the puzzle. And so I had the children in front of me, and I took out the puzzle and the pieces, and so I take out the first puzzle, and I say, wow, this is a beautiful piece, and I put it on the table. Oh, this is so nice. This is a beautiful piece, too. I love it. I put it there. I got another piece, and I said, oh, this is dark. This is ugly. I don't want it. And I threw it out. And the kids said, oh, well, you can't do that. And I said, no, I don't like that piece. 
Another one, beautiful. Ugly. No, no, no. Beautiful. Ugly. No, 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 you can't do that. So I said, why can't I do it? And I expected the answer, because the puzzle can't be completed unless you have all the pieces. Instead, a little six-year-old girl raised her hand and said, you can't throw them away because when the puzzle's finished, even the ugly pieces become beautiful. The ugly pieces in the garden, we would throw them out. The disciples, Peter, certainly wanted to throw them out. The arrest, binding his feet, hands, taking him to an unjust trial, soldiers beating him, crowned with thorns, crowds crying, crucify him, carrying his cross, being nailed to it, being mocked, ugly, 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 ugly pieces, dying and laying his head on the cross as he breathed his last breath, ugly pieces. Until three days later, Christ rose from the dead. And we call that day with all those ugly pieces Good Friday. Because our whole view of those ugly pieces realized they are beautiful. Because in them, Jesus Christ was dying for us. If that's true of the greatest day in history, when there were the most ugly pieces, where it seemed that... Life was most out of control by God. What about our days? We see a lot of ugly pieces in our lives. There will come a day when our lives are completed and the Lord's plan is completed and we will see them in a whole different way. And we know that's true because God loves us. Romans 8, 20. 32, if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? We know that God is in control and he loves us. It's proven at the foot of the cross. He's shown us the immeasurable expanse of his love on the cross. We can trust our lives, our stories into his hands. The one who loves us so much. After all, he's in control. Our Father, only your spirit can open our eyes to, to see the full wonders of the love of God in Christ Jesus. I pray this morning that your spirit will move through our communion time, through this song, to help us realize the heights and depths and widths and breadths of the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Amen.